This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Josh Fulton. Uh, I'm a history instructor here at Moraine Valley Community College. I'd like to thank you all for coming today. Uh, I'd especially like to thank, uh, of course, Dr. Troy Swanson, as well as Wally Franzik, uh, the dean of the liberal arts department here, uh, both, of course, amongst with other staff who made this, uh, this presentation possible. Uh, today we'll be joined by uh, Dr. Ted Karamansky, uh, who's a professor of history and the public history director at Loyola University, uh, who is uh, the author of Rally Around the Flag, uh, a work that uh, examines, of course, uh, the impact of Chicago uh, in the Civil War era. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ted Karamansky. Thank you, Josh, and good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I've had a chance to, to use this library uh, on occasion since I'm a resident of Palos Park, and so it's great to kind of return the favor a little bit. Uh, also, I started my academic career uh, at a community college, uh, and it was really uh, a great way for me to kind of figure out what was the next step for me to take. Uh, unfortunately, I kept taking steps. My parents said, aren't you done yet? <laughs> so I had a PhD, which took quite a while. Um, but eventually that worked out okay. Uh, but let's turn to our subject uh, at hand today, which is the Civil War. Uh, we find ourselves uh, in the second year of the Civil War sesquicentennial. Uh, and uh, uh, it's easy to come uh, to mind the events of 1862, uh, April 1862. Uh, we'll talk in a few minutes about the awful Battle of Shiloh and its impact uh, on the war and as well as uh, on our area. When we think of Chicago in the 19th century, the, probably the one event that everybody here would, would recognize and know is the alleged Great Fire of Chicago. I say alleged because I was born and raised a Southsider, and the fire didn't hurt the South Side at all. It's just these North Siders keep whining years after uh, this effect. Uh, but the fire did have uh, a big impact on the story of the Civil War because Chicagoans came back from that war with, with uh, captured flags, trophies, uh, all kinds of letters were sent back and forth between the home front uh, and uh, uh, the troops. And what unfortunately happened was that the Chicago Historical Society was this great institution that collected all this material at the time. And they assured everybody was safe because they had a fireproof vault. And unfortunately, the Chicago Historical Society is located on the north side of the city, and the vault was not at all fireproof. And so, so many of the letters and documents that would really have uh, made this story so easily come to life were destroyed. And with it, I think, uh, was destroyed then the ability of historians to go reconstruct what had happened. Uh, but to the people of that generation, to the Chicagoans who had lived through the Civil War, who had contributed to the saving of the Union, there was no doubt in their minds that the great event of 19th century Chicago was the Civil War, not this fire. You can look high and low in the city of Chicago. You'll find no memorial to the Chicago Fire, except for this ugly little sculpture out in front of the Chicago Fire Academy. Nowhere else in public space do you find a memorial to that. Yet, if you drive through uh, downtown Chicago, if you go through Grant Park, 
if you go through Lincoln Park, if you go uh, uh, up and down the boulevards of Chicago, you'll go ahead and see uh, memorials uh, to the Civil War. You'll find, uh, of course, Grand Park and Lincoln Park. You'll find Lincoln in Lincoln Park. You'll find Lincoln in Grand Park. You'll find Grant in Lincoln Park. You'll find six other statues of Lincoln scattered around the city, General Sheridan, General Logan, uh, General Oglesby, uh, and in the cemeteries, memorials to the, the private soldiers. What does all this say? Except it's a message from that generation. What should you remember about us? Remember what we did. And this was important to them because everything that had ever happened in America that was important prior to the Civil War had basically been a story of the East Coast. We didn't live in the Midwest. Chicago was considered the far west in the 1860s. Uh, Chicago was on the fringe of the country. The whole Midwest region was a fringe. And yet it was uh, the men and women of the Midwest who went ahead and rescued the work of the Founding Fathers, completed the work of the Founding Fathers, and they were justly proud of that. And you can go to almost any county in Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Indiana, and you will find in their town square a statue dedicated to the memory of the Civil War. Because through that event, they wrote themselves into the center of the American historical narrative. Now, I'm sorry the text is a little uh, small there, but uh, one of the important things to keep in mind, and the reason why they thought this war was so important, because they, they paid a terrible, terrible price uh, uh, to, uh, to bring an end to slavery and to save the Union. Uh, if we were going to go ahead and think about the losses in the Civil War, now the standard figure that's used uh, to account for Civil War losses is somewhere between 618 and 625,000 Americans dead. Uh, that would be the equivalent of 6.1 million people today, or 2% of our entire population. So virtually everyone knew, experienced themselves a loss from the Civil War or knew intimately someone uh, who died uh, in the war. And of course the really tragedy is that so many of them died not in combat uh, but uh, uh, twice as many died of diseases uh, because of the poor sanitation uh, that afflicted both of the armies but particularly the, the Confederate Army. Uh, just this week uh, a new study was released uh, which uh, seriously and I think effectively challenges the notion of how many people died in the Civil War. Uh, and they basically said the figure has been undercounted by 20%. And so that uh, it, we really should be talking about somewhere between 650 to 850,000 Americans dead in the conflict. And that, that increase would lead to 37,000 more widows in our nation and 90,000 more orphans produced uh, by the war. So this was a war for which there was a bitter, bitter price paid. And yet there was tremendous enthusiasm as well as an awful lot of division. Because anytime you're paying this big a price, people are going to 
dispute what are the proper methods. Uh, they're going to challenge the personalities involved in leading the nation. Because we're in April 18, uh, the 150th anniversary of April 1862, I want to start by drawing your attention to the Battle of Shiloh. Because that's the first time that Chicago fully understood just how uh, serious this conflict would be. There was a desire, a belief that this war could be over uh, uh, in six months to a year. But as the second spring of a war began, uh, a gigantic battle took place in Middle Tennessee uh, around uh, an, a, for, a former uh, church, uh, and it became known as the Battle of Shiloh. And just think about that, that in one battle, that more Americans died than in the Revolution, than the War of 1812, than the entire Mexican War, than the Indian Wars that have been fought. All those wars combined, one day, or it's actually a two-day battle, but one battle, they went ahead and, and suffered those kind of losses. When that story hit the newspaper, there was a shudder that went through the nation, that such a disaster had occurred. Uh, there's an old saying that after Shiloh, the South never smiled uh, because of those awful losses. Uh, and for the people in the North, uh, Shiloh went ahead and uh, caused them to have to begin to doubt the war effort or to redouble their interest in efforts. And this really affected Chicago and Illinois because a third of the army at Shiloh came from our state. And when those awful casualties were inflicted. The United States Army had no ability to take care of these soldiers. Some of the wounded stayed on the battlefield as much as five days, and it rained for the first four days after the battle. People just laying out there. The only way they were able to effectively get relief to the troops was when the Illinois State Legislature, which in those days was actually an effective institution, uh, dispatched emergency funds and they outfitted a series of trains and steamboats uh, that sent nurses, volunteer nurses, and medical supplies down to Shiloh. And that's when they began to get the men off the battlefield and uh, into proper uh, medical attention. And that underscores something that is different than the 20th century experience with war uh, that America has. America has been fortunate to fight its modern wars far away. A long troop ship voyage to Europe or to the Pacific or to Vietnam uh, or even a long transit now to Iraq or Afghanistan. In the Civil War, the battlefront, even with that 19th century technology, was just a day away. Uh, and anyone could get on a train and go down and visit the troops in camp, could go ahead and witness a Civil War battle. And this created a bond between the home front and the battlefront that was stronger uh, than uh, anything. Uh, just think of the disengagement we've had uh, with the men and women who've risked so much for us in Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, it's out of sight and for so many people out of mind. Not so with the Civil War. Now, one of the results of that kind of awful loss, like you saw occur at Shiloh, 
was something that we're, all, that we're familiar with from modern war, and that was a desire to demonize the enemy. The Civil War changed from a war between brothers to something uh, uh, that approaches total war after Shiloh. Uh, you began to see, for, for example, the Chicago Tribune print uh, stories in the newspaper about uh, Southerners were digging up the graves of Union boys killed at Shiloh. And they were whittling the bones to make souvenirs for their ghoulish girlfriends back uh, uh, in the land of the Magnolia. Now, there are instances where this happened, but it was extremely rare. But that's not the way the newspaper tried to project it. Because the newspaper, Chicago Tribune in particular, a very strong pro-war newspaper, was trying to go ahead and get people uh, to uh, uh, look at the South as something different than a place of fellow Americans. And that sort of hatred of the enemy was well illustrated uh, at Camp Douglas, the prisoner of war camp, uh, which was located in Chicago uh, in, uh, beginning in the early spring of 1862. Uh, as General Grant began to win more victories, and including the costly one at Shiloh, uh, more and more southern troops were captured. They needed a place to keep them. And so they created a prison camp on Chicago's south side. Uh, as you see, about 31st and King Drive, uh, this would be maybe a half mile west of uh, U.S. Cellular Field. One of the uh, uh, soldiers, Confederate soldiers, who was captured, and well, one of them was Bill Clinton's great-great-grandfather, he was captured twice, actually, <laughs> incarcerated twice in Camp Douglas. Each time he was paroled. Uh, but uh, uh, there was also this notable fellow here. His name was Henry Stanley. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Yes, sir. Stanley Steamer is a good guess, particularly if you like to have clean carpets. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was a different Henry Stanley. You could try, though. Uh, anybody else? Stanley Tools, another good one, yeah, but not. Anybody see an old Spencer Tracy movie about an African explorer? Yes, yes. Yeah, he was a young Welshman who came to the United States, settled in Arkansas, got all enthused when his neighbors said, let's, let's go fight for the glorious South. And he said, well, why not? And his first battle, he got captured. Uh, and, but later in life, he became an explorer of Africa uh, and uh, an administrator of the Belgium Congo uh, for a time as well. In any event, he got captured, and he was incarcerated in those barracks. And behind those barracks were the sanitation facilities. And he left a graphic account of what he saw when he looked uh, behind uh, those sanitation facilities. He said, I saw crowds of sick men who had fallen prostrate from weakness and had given themselves wholly to despair. And while they crawled or wallowed in their filth, they gasped and cursed uh, as often as they groaned. The scene he was describing was there were no bathrooms at Camp Douglas. At this stage of the camp's history, there were just open ditches where all of the awful waste would sit covered by flies in the hot sun. 
At the edge of these gaping ditches, there were many of the sick people who, unable to leave, rested there for hours and made their condition hopeless by breathing the stenchful atmosphere. Exhumed corpses could not have presented anything more hideous than the dozens of dead and half-alive men who, oblivious to the weather, hung over the latrines or lay extended along the open sewer, with only a few gasps intervening between them and death. Such, such as were not too far gone actually prayed for death, saying, Good God, Lord, let me die, let me go. And one insanely damned his vitals in his constitution because his agonies were so protracted. No self-respecting being could return from their vicinity without feeling bewildered by the infinite suffering and having his, his existence degraded and all sense of religion and sentiment just blasted away. And of course what the men were suffering from was dysentery. Where they, uh, because of exposure... Uh, to uh, germs from the bad sanitation, they were literally dehydrating themselves uh, in those latrines. And many, many of the Confederate soldiers died because of that. Henry Stanley looked at this. He tried to put up with it for several weeks. And then he remembered, I was born in Wales. <laughs> Do I really have a dog in this fight? And he became what was known as a galvanized Yankee. Uh, thousands of Confederates who actually in Camp Douglas said, forget about the sunny South. They took an oath of allegiance to the United States government, put on a blue uniform, and switched sides. And that was the best way to get out of Camp Douglas uh, alive. Not much remains of the camp today. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're on a trip to the White Sox opening day, perhaps uh, next Friday, and decide you want to check it out, you'll find almost no indication of it. There's no historical markers or anything. But the camp was very, very large. 158 of these buildings, all gone and destroyed. Though there is a group today uh, that's working to try to have rebuilt uh, one of the barracks. Uh, to be served as part for living history and another part to be a little bit of a museum of uh, the Civil War in Chicago. And hopefully they'll be successful in that. But the sad legacy of Camp Douglas is the deaths of at least 4,500 Confederates. That's more Confederates than died at the Battle of Vicksburg or Fredericksburg uh, or Shiloh. They didn't die in a battle. They died in Chicago, one of the largest cities in the United States. And they're buried today in the largest mass grave in the United States. We have that dubious honor in Chicago. But it was no accident that this happened. Uh, there was uh, a desire, particularly by 1863-64, to punish rebels. And the Chicago Board of Trade, for example, petitioned Abraham Lincoln. Hundreds of signatures petitioned Abraham Lincoln. Cut Confederate rations at Camp Douglas so that those men will suffer more. It's exactly what they asked the president to do. Lincoln thought they were suffering enough already and, <laughs> and didn't, uh, didn't do that. Now, fortunately, the Civil War 
uh, and the intensity of the bond between the soldiers and the home front brought out much more than just a desire to hurt the enemy, than a desire for vengeance. And that's really well illustrated by an organization called the Sanitary Commission. This was a Civil War era institution that uh, was created, it was sort of a combination of the Red Cross and the USO. They provided emergency medical assistance, uh, but they also uh, tried to work to help the morale of the Union Army. And while this organization was led by men, because women were seen as not having executive ability, uh, most of the work was done by women. And the Sanitary Commission became a way for women in the North to be able to make their contribution to the war effort. Uh, and one of the really successful people doing that was this woman, Mary Livermore, uh, a remarkable lady uh, who, although she was the mother of four children, uh, and uh, she went ahead and nonetheless wanted to do her part for the troops. She did go visit military hospitals after the Battle of Shiloh, uh, but she couldn't be away long. And so when she got back to Chicago, she was searching for a way to stay engaged. And she heard that the Sanitary Commission, uh, the Northwest Sanitary Commission, the, the branch that was based in Chicago, had run out of money. They had supplied anti-scurvy medicine for uh, Grant's Army. And so they had spent all their funds on that, and they were, they were just broke. And they were trying to find ways to raise money. So Mary Livermore goes before the men of the board, and she said to them, I think we ladies can do something. I think we can help here. Okay, what can you do? Well, you know, we can uh, organize a fair and we can sell things, raise money. Sometimes you see student groups doing this, right? You know, they're going ahead and selling donuts or they're selling candles or things like that. And they said, well, Mary, how much do, money think, do you think you can raise that way? She said, well, if we're lucky, maybe $5,000. And they laughed at her. said, oh, yeah. You ladies are going to, this is, you know, that's a lot of money in those days. You ladies are going to raise $5,000 by selling things. Okay. Sure, go right ahead. Happy to have your help. And with their laughter ringing in her ears, she began to organize a network of women from across the Midwest region. You know, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin. These women sent representatives to Chicago. And there she organized them, send the best products in your community to us. Uh, if you're a farming community, send us your farm goods. Uh, if you people make wagons, send us some of your wagons. If you people uh, raise horses, send us some of your horses. Uh, if you're uh, making clothing, if you're making shoes, send us those things, and we will sell them, and we will raise money for the troops. And if you don't do any of those things, then give us some money. <laughs> but we're going to go ahead and try to make a difference here. And she organized this thing called the Northwest Sanitary Fair. And as the materials began to flow in, she rented out the big meeting halls in downtown Chicago. And the stuff kept coming in. And she was filling up all these meeting halls. Finally, she'd gotten construction materials as part of the donation and money. She said, okay, we're going to have to build a whole new hall for this stuff. And where the Chicago Cultural Center is today, they built this structure you see in the background, Fair Hall. And Fair Hall was divided into places that sold shoes, places that sold dresses, uh, an art gallery, a food court, a theater, places that sold men's clothing, places that sold hats. 
And what Mary Livermore invented was a shopping mall. Now, this is the same time Marshall Field is starting up his business. You know, this great mercantile mind, he missed it. He never caught on that this could be a really great concept. And so we had to wait till the 1950s and 60s to see, to see shopping malls. But when she was having that building built, here as, as the fair was, date was approaching, she went to the construction site one day and saw the workers just standing around doing nothing. So what's going on here? The fair is going to be happening in a couple of weeks. We've got to get this building up. They said, oh, we've got the materials and we've got the construction plans, but we can't do anything because we don't have a legal contract. She goes, I signed a contract last week. What are you talking about? Yeah, you signed the contract. You're a woman. Go home and get your husband to sign the contract because you don't have legal authority to sign a contract. And so Mary Livermore made a vow. And when the Civil War was over, the women that she brought together to work on the Sanitary Commission stayed connected. And they founded uh, uh, the women's rights movement in Illinois. She didn't live to see the suffrage, but she did work successfully to change the laws and the civil status of women and open up the legal profession uh, for women. She used that money from the fair to have built something called the Chicago Soldiers' Home. And uh, this was for troops that were... These troops would often get wounded or they'd be sick at the front and they'd be sent home. And on their way home back to Wisconsin or, or Michigan, they'd pass through Chicago and need medical attention. And so she built this soldier's home where they could go and get free medical attention. Then after the war, for disabled veterans, it became a place for them to live. And that building still exists, operated by Catholic Charities today. Uh, and it's uh, uh, right uh, near the lakefront uh, directly uh, east of uh, uh, Comiskey Park uh, on 35th Street. Another one of the people inspired by uh, uh, the Civil War and the, and the desire to, to help out uh, was this fellow George Frederick Root. At the beginning of the war, he started writing songs about the war. And a number of them were very successful. And then in July of 62... When, Grant, uh, excuse me, when Lincoln had to call for 300,000 more volunteers to keep this war effort going, uh, they organized this giant recruiting rally in Chicago uh, down in the square in front of uh, City Hall. And in those days, there were no microphones. So if you're going to talk to a large group of people, there was a limit to how many people could hear you uh, just by how vo far your voice could carry. So when they had this monster rally, they organized four speaker platforms. And they had one speaker here, one speaker there. And on one of the platforms, they had a group of singers. And George Frederick Root wrote this song for them called The Battle Cry of Freedom. And they started singing it on that platform. And all across then the square, people started hearing the refrain, and they started singing it. And before the song was over, the whole square, 10,000 people, were singing this song in unison. Now, this was before the days of the old 8-track uh, cassette player uh, or before reel-to-reel, -reel, before LPs. 
before 33s or 78s. Forget downloads. The only way you could buy music in 1862 was to buy sheet music. And he sold... Now, this is a time when the United States, the northern population was 20 million people. He sold 150,000 copies of this sheet music, which I think easily would make it the best-selling song in American history. But they didn't give out gold records in those days because they didn't know about records. Uh, but this song not only enthused people on the home front, uh, but it had an effect on the troops. Uh, and so... For example, after the Battle of Stones River, a brutal battle fought in the last day of December and the second day of January, uh, 1862-3, and Confederate troops had been hammering the Union soldiers, attacking and attacking, pushing them back, but the Union troops would not retreat. They held their lines. And in the wake of that, the Confederate army was forced to retreat. Lincoln later said that if it hadn't been for that battle, he doesn't know what would happen to the country because it was right after the disaster at Fredericksburg. And had the armies in the West been defeated, it could have been the end of his administration. But instead, the troops went ahead and held. Uh, and in the wake of that battle, the Confederates retreated. And as the rear guard of the Confederate army looked across the cold, stone, uh, the cold surface of Stones River, they saw the Union troops gathered around the camps and they were singing the song, Rally Around the Flag. And the Confederate general turned to his subordinate and he said, we beat these guys two days running, and yet there they are singing they're going to rally around the flag. I don't know if we can win this war. The South didn't have that kind of home front activity. I mean, most of the popular songs in the South were written by Northerners. They just ripped them off, changed the lyrics. Uh, but in the North, people like George Frederick Root and his, one of his songwriters, Henry uh, Clay Work, who later wrote the song Marching Through Georgia, they put out a steady stream of these songs that helped to keep up morale. The idealism of the Civil War generation was something that had an enduring impact on Chicago. And a classic example of this is, uh, uh, is this woman. She was just a young girl of nine or ten when the Civil War uh, uh, ended. And in April 65, she was out playing with some friends. She came home at the end of the day in the twilight and saw black crepe hanging from her front door, which was always a sign of mourning. She went into the parlor, and sitting in the shadows was her father with tears streaking down his face. And he put his arm around her and said, Jane... The greatest man in the world has been killed. And that's how she found out about the death of Abraham Lincoln, who was a close friend of her father's. Who was that girl? Jane Addams, exactly. Jane Addams was just young, a young person in the Civil War, but she was inspired by the conflict. And if you read her autobiography, she'll, she indicates that she was inspired to help the poor, the wretched of the immigrant slums, by the example of Abraham Lincoln. She felt that she was bringing his compassion to the people of the city who needed it most. And that was often difficult to do. She had all kinds of obstacles. The politicians in Chicago were no more friendly to her than they were friendly to anybody else who's trying to do good. Uh, but when things got frustrating for her, she would go ahead and step back and step out. She would walk. You probably know the whole house 
is located on the University of Illinois Chicago campus. She would walk from there to Lincoln Park, which is a pretty good hike. And there in Lincoln Park was a statue to Abraham Lincoln. And around the statue are the various famous phrases from Lincoln's political career. She would go there and she said, looking at his face, thinking about his memory, was like a refreshing breeze from off of the prairie. And she regarded him as the epitome of all that was great and good in America. And this was what she would do to restore herself. Those very parks that she visited came about because of the partnership between Chicagoans uh, and the Sanitary Commission. Uh, people like Frederick Law Olmsted, who was very active in the Sanitary Commission, uh, and uh, uh, the architect uh, uh, John Boynton, uh, were Sanitary Commission veterans who worked together uh, to then design the first parks in Chicago to create a more healthful environment for people who live, were living in congested tenements. Also inspired by the idealism of the Civil War, were a lot of soldiers enlisted in the cause. Very few. There were, there were draft riots uh, in the country during the Civil War, but the overwhelming majority of soldiers were volunteers, people who wanted to fight. And from... Uh, our south suburban area, the majority of those uh, joined the 39th Illinois Infantry. Uh, that's where you find people from Palos Township and Orland Township in fairly large numbers. Uh, and they really were a, a hard-fighting unit. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Glory and that fatal charge made by the 54th Massachusetts, eventually that fort was captured uh, by... Uh, the men of the 39th Illinois. Uh, one of them in, in, the, in the Siege of Petersburg won the Congressional Medal of Honor for capturing a Confederate flag. And you'll find this painting, in fact, in the Tinley Park uh, City Hall. And they were there at the end. Uh, they fought at Appomattox, and it was to the 39th Illinois uh, that the Confederates gave their, uh, their weapons when they surrendered, when Lee's Army of Northern Virginia collapsed. Now, not everybody was so excited about this war effort or the Lincoln administration. There, were, there was a strong opposition element in the North who were known as the Copperheads. And one of the leading Copperheads was a Chicagoan, the editor of the Chicago Times, Wilbur F. Story. This guy was a fantastic journalist one of the great figures in 19th century journalism. His motto was, print the news and raise hell. One time he was covering uh, an execution at Joliet State Prison. Uh, and the headline, in big, bold uh, letters in the Chicago Times was, jerked to Jesus. So he tried to be colorful, to grab people's attention. The day Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which was what, I think, September 22nd, 1862. He turned against Lincoln. He never said a good... He heaped a mountain of purple prose upon the president in the wake of that event because Wilbur Story, while being a great journalist, was a bitter, bitter racist. He hated African Americans. He saw African Americans as an inferior people who were fit only to be servants uh, to white America. And the idea we would be fighting to free them, he felt was, he called it the death knell of the white race. 
His comments, you know, people consider the Gettysburg Address the greatest piece of rhetoric and political rhetoric in American history. Wilbur Story wrote a whole editorial describing what an awful speech it was and how fool, how can so foolish a Joe, old joker be president was his reaction to the uh, emancipation. Now, because he was so against the Lincoln administration, Wilbur Story uh, became uh, a lightning rod for pro-administration supporters. And one of them became a little over-eager, Ambrose Burnside. He'd been commander of the Army of the Potomac in the disastrous battle at Fredericksburg, after which Wilbur Story always referred to him as Butcher Burnside. And so when, Story, uh, when, when Burnside got command of uh, the home front soldiers, he ordered the troops to leave Camp Douglas and shut down the Chicago Times at Bayonet Point. First Amendment be damned. And at first this was real popular with the Republicans in Chicago until the loyal Democratic readers, because the Times was a Democratic newspaper, started rallying in the streets and holding sp uh, speeches and calling for retaliation and finally going ahead and throwing stones at a brand new building built by the Chicago Tribune and threatening to burn it down. And in a panic, Joseph Medill, the editor of the Tribune, wires Lincoln, get Burnside to go ahead and open up the Times before I lose my new building, which Lincoln did. Story was highly influential in the Democratic Party, and it was at his uh, uh, insistence that the Democrats in 1864 held their national convention in Chicago. Uh, and this convention... Uh, while it nominated uh, George B. McClellan for the presidency, this convention uh, was dedicated to a platform of making peace with the Confederacy, of essentially going ahead and uh, recognizing the independence of the southern states. They didn't put it quite that strong, but that's what their position amounted to, as you can see in this, in this cartoon. And that was, in part, the work of Wilbur Story. That didn't work, however, uh, because while they nominated a candidate who they promised was going to bring peace, America wasn't listening to that because right after the Democratic Convention ended, Sherman captured Atlanta, Farragut captured Mobile, and Sheridan went ahead and cleaned the Confederates out of the Shenandoah Valley. And it looked like Lincoln's on the verge of winning this darn war. Let's support him. But some people weren't content with that. And when... Getting Lincoln out of office legally failed. They turned to illegal methods of trying to end the war. And there was something called the Northwest Conspiracy. And what the Northwest Conspiracy uh, uh, brought together were uh, copperheads uh, and Confederate agents, Confederate secret agents. There were about 50 or 60 of them in Chicago and northern Illinois uh, in 1864. And their plan was to raise an army of dissidents in the north and take over the town of Chicago. Maybe even try to hold it hostage to the Lincoln administration. And to help them do this, they smuggled weapons into Camp Douglas, where there were over 10,000 Confederate soldiers. And they would liberate the prisoners, and they would go ahead and uh, uh, rally these supporters. Uh, the head of the uh, uh, conspiracy in Chicago 
was a fellow by the name of Charles Walsh. He fancied himself Brigadier General Charles Walsh. He was the former sheriff of Cook County. So this guy was a serious player. But fortunately, the Secret Service went ahead and infiltrated this conspiracy, and they uh, busted it up. And here's some of the prisoners who were organized to retaliate uh, against their incarceration. And there's a British officer who was working with the Confederates as a secret agent. And he ended up uh, dying. Uh, he was imprisoned uh, at Fort Jefferson, the Dry Tortugas, America's Devil's Island. And uh, he ended up dying there uh, after the Civil War. Now, one of the things that inspired the Copperheads, not all of them, some of them were very principled, trying to protect civil liberties. And that wasn't always so clear at the time. You know, the Lincoln administration did go ahead and violate a number of uh, First Amendment and uh, uh, Bill of Rights uh, of the American citizens. But there was also a racism was a serious part of uh, the anti-war movement. And as the war progressed, some people saw African-Americans in Chicago as a target, as the people to blame for this war. Uh, and the African-American population was growing during the Civil War in Chicago. And when they came to the city, they didn't have skills. Uh, they were, in fact, illegal uh, because it was illegal for African-Americans to enter the state of Illinois without a, uh, uh, a job and written permission from an employer. So they were basically illegal immigrants to Illinois. And... The only place they could get jobs is in the most unskilled workplaces. That put them in direct competition with the most impoverished group in Chicago, Irish Americans. And so the docks uh, where you could unload lumber from ships, uh, uh, African Americans and Irish Americans clashed constantly during the war. Uh, and the first big riot in Chicago was the 1862 omnibus riot when an Irish uh, teamster tried to evict a uh, black man from riding in the horse-drawn bus. As you can see, reflecting that sentiment, the Chicago City Council actually voted to, to keep African Americans out of the same schools whites were in during the Civil War. So in the same year you have the Emancipation Proclamation, you have other white people going ahead and reacting, saying, we want nothing to do with black America. But African-Americans in Chicago were not just taking this line down. Uh, there was a small population. Uh, African-Americans were less than 1% of the population of Illinois, uh, but a slightly large, much larger in the city of Chicago. And they really tried to go ahead and rally around the government, uh, particularly after Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, John Jones was probably the leader of African-American politics in Chicago. He was played an important role in recruiting troops for the 54th Massachusetts, the unit that was seen in the movie Glory. And it's not known, but there were a large number of soldiers from Chicago who actually served in that regiment. They weren't from Massachusetts. Massachusetts was just the, fir just the first state that was willing, the first state in the north, to take African-American volunteers. Another really prominent person in black Chicago during the war was uh, H. Ford Douglas. Uh, Douglas was, uh, uh, his father was white and his mother was a black slave. He fled slavery in Virginia and became an abolitionist speaker. Uh, because of his lighter skin, 
uh, he was able to join in 1862 the 95th Illinois uh, Infantry. Uh, and obviously, this was against the law for an African-American to do this. Uh, but the men in his unit uh, respected him as a person and basically covered for him. And so he fought through the Vicksburg campaign uh, with the 95th. Uh, then he raised an, uh, a regiment of infantry uh, among Louisiana uh, 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 African-Americans. And uh, finally uh, organized and became an officer, became a captain, one of the few African-Americans who became an officer, uh, became a captain and organized an African-American artillery unit uh, in Kansas uh, to go ahead and keep the Confederates from uh, attacking that state. His wife, uh, Satira, uh, was also very active, and she formed this Freedmen's Relief Organization to go ahead and bring support for all these poor African-Americans who they escaped slavery, and they were in these contraband camps. Uh, and uh, they needed educational services. They needed food. They needed uh, training. And so uh, she worked to provide that for them. And after the war, uh, Satira and uh, H. Ford Douglas uh, were disgusted at the kind of backlash racism that still existed in the South. And so they organized a community in Kansas. They said they have come to Kansas and we can be free on the frontier. Uh, and uh, uh, H. Ford Douglas actually died uh, uh, in Emporia, Kansas, uh, from malaria that he contracted during the war while he was trying to build up that African-American colony. Uh, he went ahead and uh, uh, was a good friend and correspondent with Frederick Douglass, the famous, much more famous black abolitionist. And... Uh, uh, at the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Douglas wrote a le uh, Ford Douglas wrote a letter to Frederick. Uh, and I, let me just read that for a, a minute because uh, I think it really reveals his uh, uh, political acuum and uh, his determination. The slaves are free. How can I write these precious words? In anticipation of this result, I enlisted six months ago in order to be better prepared to play my part in the great drama of the Negro's redemption. I wanted its drill, its practical details, for mere theory does not make a good soldier. I have learned something of war, for I have seen war in its brightest as well as its bloodiest phase, and yet I have nothing to regret. For since the stern necessities of this struggle have laid bare the naked issue of freedom on one side and slavery on the other, freedom shall have, in future of this conflict, if necessary, my blood, as it had in the past, my earnest and best words. This war will educate Mr. Lincoln out of his idea of the deportation of the Negro quite as fast as it has some of his other pro-slavery ideas with respect to employing soldiers. And that's a reminder that Lincoln came himself gradually to both emancipation and African-American citizenship. And that citizenship came because people like Frederick Douglass and Ford Douglass took a lead in helping to preserve the Union. Now, there were other people in Chicago who were a little less enthusiastic about the war effort, but were pretty canny to spot a good business opportunity. And if you look at the Gilded Age elite of both Chicago and the nation, people like 
John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Cornelius Vanderbilt. These people used the occasion of the war, even though they were of military age, to build their fortunes. And so did Philip Danforth Armour, uh, Gustavus Field, Potter Palmer, George Pullman. They bought substitutes. They sent other people to fight for them. And they laid the foundation for important industries in Chicago's future, but also their own personal fortunes. And Chicago really becomes an industrial city because of the Civil War. And you, some of you remember the experience of World War II in Chicago. We built bombers in Chicago at Ford City. Now all we got there now is a shopping center there. As soon as the war was over, bam, they stopped making bombers in Chicago because they didn't need any more bombers. What happened in Chicago during the Civil War was the industry that was built was industry that was built upon what was already a strong sector of Chicago's economy. So it could be, it just enhanced what we were doing already to the next level. So, for example, Chicago was already a great grain uh, uh, distribution center. It was already uh, the beef packing center for the country. And so what they did is they began to focus and concentrate those industries more and be began to focus on food byproducts, which is still a huge area of employment uh, in Chicago today. So the Union Stockyards are founded in the Civil War. And Chicago seizes from Cincinnati, and Cincinnati still regrets this. If you ever visit their baseball stadium, outside the baseball stadium they have these statues of flying pigs. It's like, what is this? I mean, I know I don't like the Cincinnati Reds, but come on. Uh, and their nickname of their city is Porcopolis. But they ceased to be Porcopolis in 1863 when Chicago took that title away from them. And then Carl Sandburg gave a better way of putting it, hog butcher to the world, uh, was the way he described it. Uh, and that's something that came about because of the Civil War. The other great industries uh, that developed in Chicago during the Civil War was heavy industry, particularly steel manufacturing. And steel production came about in Chicago because Chicago was a great rail center already. And Grant's forces needed to have their food, the meat and the grain that's being organized in Chicago. They need to get it down to the troops. And the way to do that was by train. Now, before the Civil War, they only had iron rails. Iron rails wear out easily. Nowhere in the United States did they make a steel rail, the kind of long-lasting rails we have today. The first one was made in Chicago at the North Chicago Rolling Mill. It was then located on Goose Island. They since turned that into manufacturing beer. And then after the war, they moved that plant to the south side. And it became the United States Steel Corporation South Works plant, uh, which eventually employed 10,000 uh, Chicagoans at that site. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that built up industry in Chicago. And the final way industry was built up uh, during the war uh, was by building a financial basis for heavy industry. When the Civil War started in 1861, less than $100,000 were in deposit in all of Chicago's banks. This is a pittance. When the war ended, there was $30 million on deposit. Now, 
What would change that besides inflation? <laughs> because there was some inflation during the war. But what changed that was people could trust the banks. Because the Lincoln administration in 1863 introduced something called national banks. Banks supported by the federal government. Up to this time, banks issued their own money. You know, if uh, the Standard Bank in Palos Park decides they want to go ahead and uh, uh, print money, they just print money. What's that money worth? It's worth whatever the bank says it is or whatever the storekeeper tells you he'll take for it. The national banks issued greenbacks. They were backed by the federal government. They weren't always worth a dollar in fair exchange, but at least the value was guaranteed. At least you could go to the government. You could pay your taxes with it, and, and they take it at 100%. You could buy land with it. But anyway, this, these were banks people trusted, and it had a huge impact. That's what allows the number of factories in Chicago to triple because of the Civil War, because you've got a financial capital base that can then invest the large amounts of money that are necessary to build industrial facilities. So the union was saved, but at a cost. A cost not paid by everybody. A cost paid by the soldiers and the families and the families of those who enlisted and fought. So out of Cook County, 22,000 soldiers served. More than 15,000 of them from Chicago. And think about the, the population in 1860, uh, 61 I should say, is 110,000. That's a lot of men to come out of that population. In fact, there were only 18,000 registered voters in Chicago in 1860. And a lot of them paid the price. Per near a third of them paid the price. But they fought heroically. And through their efforts, kept this one country. In spite of their efforts to impress upon us its importance, the Civil War has kind of largely been forgotten in Chicago. Uh, nobody knows. <laughs> How many of you have ever been to the Confederate Mound at Oakwood Cemetery? So three, four of you. That is more than I find in most groups. Uh, but most people don't even know it exists. But over at 67th and, uh, and Cottage Grove. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that the Civil War kind of gets forgotten is, of course, each generation has their own trauma. Each generation makes their own history, and each generation remakes the face of the city. Poor Richard M. Daly's hardly out of office a couple of years, and Mayor Emanuel's introducing new plans <laughs> to go ahead and change the face of the city. Things that were important to my parents' generation, the Chicago stockyards, they both had jobs working there. My grandfather had a job working there. Uh, now most people don't even know where it is. The only remnant of it is the, is the old entrance gate still stands there. The wigwam where Abraham Lincoln was nominated for the presidency in Chicago, long gone, replaced by the beautiful 33 East Wacker building. Uh, really sad is the Civil War veterans built a particular structure, which is now the Chicago Cultural Center. They built this building and they said, here we're going to go ahead and permanently protect the memory of the war generation. 
They owned the land. They said to Chicago Public Library, you can build your library building here, but inside of it, we're going to have a glorious meeting room where we're going to display our trophies, our artifacts, our memoirs of the war. And for years afterwards, uh, this was a Civil War museum in Chicago. Now it's closed. The artifacts aren't on display any longer. Uh, and this facility is available for your corporation to rent from the city of Chicago and closed off otherwise from the public. Even the First National Bank, look at their, look at their first stock certificate with the Union soldier uh, and the American Eagle on it. Be a patriot. Buy stock in the first, in first National Bank of Chicago. It's been gobbled up uh, by uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. But in spite of that, we still go ahead and drive down streets uh, uh, that are named after Civil War generals, like Garfield Boulevard or Sheridan Road. Uh, we still drive in cars that say Land of Lincoln, past parks that honor Grant, and statues that honor Lincoln. Uh, the city of Chicago is still uh, vibrant economically because of the bustle of its trading pits that first began trading futures in Chicago during the Civil War. We're still a great transportation center as we emerged during the Civil War. And we're still a city that's divided racially. Tensions that first emerged during the Civil War. And in all those ways, the hands of the Civil War generation still rests heavy on Chicago's shoulder. Thank you. I know you've been sitting for a while, but uh, and if you have to go back to class or get home to your job, fine. But if you have a question or two, I'd be happy to answer. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. Uh, the question is, Civil War battles sometimes are confusing because they have two names. Uh, the Confederates tended to name their battles after locations, uh, uh, towns that they were near, and the Union wanted to name the battles after geographic features. So Union battles are usually, uh, the Confederates say Murfreesboro from the town in Tennessee, the Union says Stones River, uh, and Bull Run or Manassas. Uh, but uh, the Battle of Shiloh uh, were for, was basically a Union name, uh, where the Confederates called the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing uh, on the Tennessee River. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, I mean, this is a very interesting issue of memory on the Civil War. And it's a very, it's a true fact that in many places in the South, uh, such as in the state of Mississippi, in the state of Georgia, in the state of South Carolina, the Confederate uh, battle flag uh, had not been widely used until the Civil Rights Movement in the wake of World War II. And then, for example, they changed the Georgia flag to include uh, 
the Confederate uh, battle flag. Uh, they decide, let's fly the Confederate flag over the state capital in South Carolina. Um, and uh, so, although people will say Confederate soldiers didn't all fight for slavery, and it's true, the majority of Confederate soldiers didn't own slaves, but Confederate symbols were appropriated in the recent past, the 1950s and 60s, to serve racist purposes. And there's no two ways around that. And so people say, my uncle, or my great-grandfather was a Confederate soldier. That's my heritage. But it's somebody else's heritage to say, yeah, and, they, and somebody waving that same flag burned down my church. So it's a conflicting issue. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, <laughs> uh, he asks, uh, you know, the Copperheads were against Lincoln, so why is Lincoln on a Copperhead uh, with the penny? Uh, and that's a damn good question, and, and I don't know. Maybe it was some Democrat in the Mint who got his revenge on Lincoln uh, by giving him such a chintzy little coin, you know. Why couldn't he be on the quarter? <laughs> yes, sir. It was, Yeah. Yes, he's, he's buried very close to there. And that's another interesting historic site to visit. It's a, it's a sad thing that the memory of Stephen Douglas has been eclipsed. Uh, he ran a fairly racist campaign in both 1858 and again in 1860 uh, against Lincoln. But Douglas uh, was a great person for building Chicago. Uh, Chicago really becomes a great rail center because of Douglas's involvement with the Illinois Central Railroad and then later the, the Pacific Railroad. He almost destroyed America, in fact, to get the Pacific Railroad built with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And he deserves to be remembered as somebody who played a really crucial role uh, in building Chicago. Deservedly so. You're right. Well, thank you very much, uh, and I hope you have a nice Easter holiday. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.